Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the man who's appeared in over 470 Major League Baseball games, 43 of them this season with the New York Mets. He's also played for the San Diego Padres, Cincinnati Reds, Philadelphia Phillies, and Seattle Mariners. He attended Stony Brook University in a partial baseball scholarship. During his junior year, he helped take Stony Brook to the Cinderella appearance in the 2012 College World Series. That same year, the Padres selected him in the first round of the 2012 Major League Baseball draft. It is a pleasure to welcome a current member of the Syracuse Mets, Travis Jankowski, to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Travis. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. It's our pleasure. And before we talk about what really has been a whirlwind of a season for you, let's talk a little bit about your career. You come from a very athletic family. Your mother, Kelly, played softball while your your dad, Paul, was an outfielder for the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. You and your older brother, Tyler, were both coached by your dad from a young age. What was the biggest lessons you learned from your dad as a ball player? Yeah, for me, it was, um, you know, just go out there and play hard every single day. Um and that's something that I still try to do to this day, you know, no matter if it's, um, you know, in the backyard with my kids today or, you know, in front of 40,000 people in New York City, I'm going out and I'm playing as hard as I can. Um, I think that's one of the best lessons that, that parents can give their kids. And I think it's something that has kind of drifted away um, in this generation of baseball players. So I hope to bring that back with uh, with the next generation. You went to Lancaster Catholic High School where you played both football and baseball. You actually get to play on the high school team with your brother under coach Mike Hoffman. What was that experience like getting to play with Ty and what did you learn from playing for coach Hoffman? Yeah, you know, coach was a great mentor. Um, he was around the game for a long time. His son actually helped him coach. Um, so they had a lot of knowledge to instill into us as high schoolers. Um, as far as playing with my brother, what an awesome experience for me. Um, to be able to play both baseball and football with him. Um, those things, you know, in the summers when our parents would go to work, me and Ty would stay in the backyard and, uh, you know, we'd play wiffle ball and any ball over the house was a home run. So to be able to translate that into a, a game that, you know, truly mattered and the score really, really meant something was, was something that, uh, you know, we'll cherish forever. You mentioned football. You're a, a star wide receiver on that football team as, you know, coach, uh, Bruce Harbeck raved about your play, and you were voted wide receiver of the year. What went into your decision to start to focus on baseball only and ultimately commit to play college baseball at Stony Brook University on a partial scholarship? Yeah, it wasn't that, um, that I was able to decide on my own. Uh, my high school baseball coach kind of sat me down, and, and I was all gung-ho about going and playing football. You know, I loved football, the, the adrenaline rush you get on a Friday night playing football uh, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, is something that uh, you can probably only match in the big leagues. Um, but it's one of those things where uh, my high school coach sat me down. He said, hey, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a professional athlete of some sort. You know, I don't think I can sit in office all day and work. I need to go do something professionally in the sports world. And he said, all right, well, if that's your goal, um, you know, at the time I was 165 pounds, about six foot nothing. He said, if you want to go and play college football at a high level, 
you know, the linebackers are going to be 250 pounds. He said, how many hits do you think you're going to be able to take? He goes, you're not going to be able to stay up the seam and on the sideline and not take hits. He said, you're going to have hits. I said, well, I can probably take one hit, but that's about it. So he said, all right. He goes, baseball is your route. And um, it wasn't one of those things that I was happy with at the time. You know, like I said, my heart was all in on football. But once I made that decision, it, um, it was obviously the best decision I ever made. So I'm curious. Uh, I know Stony Brook was the only school that offered you a scholarship. What was the process? Did you find them? Did they find you? You know, basically, I'm wondering how someone from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, hooks up with a school on Long Island that's not really known for its sports programs. Yeah, so I uh, I went to two uh, showcases in my life. You know, I never did travel ball. Uh, playing football in the fall, it was really tough to do travel ball or get to many showcases and be in actual baseball shape. So. Uh, my junior year that summer, I went down and um, I went to a showcase down in Tampa Bay, actually, at the race stadium, Tropicana Field. And there were about 14 teams that were down there. And I'm looking at the list of these teams, and it's Florida, Florida State, Stetson, uh, Florida International. And I'm like, oh, yes, you know, I'm going down south. I'm getting out of this cold weather. I'm going to play in Florida. Um, at the bottom of the list was Stony Brook. And I'll never forget looking at Stony Brook looking at my dad and saying, Stony Brook, what is that, some D3 school? I'm never going there. That's the last place I'll go. And sure enough, went down to this showcase, did okay. You know, I didn't overly impress, but didn't underperform. And sure enough, the only coach who came up and talked to me afterwards was Joe Panucci, the assistant at Stony Brook University. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, of course. You know, the one school I said I'm not going to is the only school talking to me. So he says, hey, man, you know, we're Stony Brook. We're up in Long Island. You're from Pennsylvania. We would love for you to come up on a weekend and visit, see the campus. I said, "Okay, you know, I'll go up and check it out. Uh, Went up there, loved the campus, loved the coaches, really, you know, related well with them. And they offered me a scholarship. And that was the only one at the time. So it made it a pretty easy choice for me. So you enrolled Stony Brook in 2009 and you ended up playing in the then recently named Joe Nathan Field. I say after Joe Nathan was the first Stony Brook player to make it to Major League, gave him $500,000 to upgrade the facilities. How aware were you of Nathan? Was he any sort of presence uh, in the program while you were there? Um, it was zero. You know, I had no idea. Um, again, one of those schools that I just didn't even know was actually a school, you know, um, and then getting up there, you know, it was one of those things that, you know, you learned Joe Nathan went there and then, to be honest, I had to do a little research on who Joe. So hopefully this doesn't get leaked out to Joe. But uh, <laughs> back when uh, when they opened up the field and I got to talk with them and he's a standout guy. He's one of the best guys out there. So it was good to talk with him. And, um, you know, for him to kind of start that legacy and prove to people that you can make it from Stony Brook and get to the major leagues and have a successful career and then pass that down to, um, you know, Tommy Kohler and Nick Tropiano and. And myself, it's one of those things that you just want that legacy to keep building and keep growing. You adapted really quickly to college ball, and each year you show improvement. You also, between your freshman and sophomore year, played collegiate summer ball with the Marion Bobcats of the Kitty League. And later in the summer, you're invited to play for the Bourne Braves, in, which is one of AJ and my favorite leagues, the Cape Cod League. In fact, we, we love the league so much that one year we just randomly picked a player that was playing in the Cape Cod League and chronicled his whole summer, and that player went on, it was Whit Merrifield, so we, we picked a good one. Um, you know, you win the Cape Cod Most Valuable Player, leading the league with 57 hits, 31 runs scored, seven triples. 
Could you describe what the Cape Cod experience um, playing in that league's like for people that might know nothing about that league? Yeah, for me personally, it's a dream come true. You know, that's a league I've always inspired, aspired to play with. And, uh, you know, that's the cream of the crop. That's the best of the best in college baseball that go up there. So, um, yeah, to break it down a little bit, you stay with host families. Um, you know, you're, you're moving in with um, a family that you really don't know. Um, they provide you with, you know, a room, food, um, pretty much everything, you know, it's, it's, it's honestly like a family, you know, and I was blessed to have a great family up there. Um, three kids, mom, dad was in there and, and they provided me with great breakfast, which was pretty much the only meal I ate there. But, um, no, you wake up, eat your breakfast, head to the field around three o'clock, um, about 30 scouts at every game watching from three o'clock on watching you do infield outfield, watching you hit in the cage early, watching you take batting practice on the field, watching you shag, you know, if you're an infielder watching you take round balls, it's, um, it's a showcase every single day up there. Um, and, uh, you know, you learn pretty quick. If you're not locked in, the competition's too good to just kind of skate by and breeze through. So you have to be locked in every single day from three o'clock until 10 o'clock when the games are over. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a busy, busy, uh, summer. It's a fun summer. Um, and then you, you, you know, you mix in the, the advisors and the agents who want to talk with people and, and take you out to breakfast. It becomes a pretty busy summer, but it was, uh, it was awesome up there. And, you know, hopefully once my career is done, I can spend a summer up there at least maybe two weeks and take, uh, take my kids up there and my family up there, because I'd love to see it as a fan. Wow. You use that summer as a springboard as 2012, proved to be a breakout season for you throughout the regular season. You lead the nation to hits, runs, scored, triples, top 10 in batting average and stolen bases. In that postseason, you are the Seawolves leading hitter during that Cinderella run to the 2012 uh, College World Series. You scored four runs um, um, in that Stony Brook's uh, 7-2 victory over Louisiana State to take the Baton Rouge Super Regional to reach the College World Series. The team's run comes to an end in the opener when UCLA beat you guys 9-1. to Nevertheless, Stony Brook coach uh, Matt Sank was named Coach of the Year. Um, you became Stony Brook's first ever first-round Major League Baseball draft pick. You're inducted into the Stony Brook Hall of Fame in 2017. Looking back at your time at Stony Brook, how much did those two seasons set the foundation for you as a professional baseball player? Oh, they were huge, you know, um, and I was able to, um, you know, I, I always joke around and say a guy from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, going up to Long Island, New York and learning that Long Island, New York toughness was one of the best things for me. You know, you go up on a field of primarily, um, you know, New Yorkers and Long Island guys they have this tough mentality, this kind of cockiness, this confidence to them. And it's one of those things you either adapt to it or you get thrown to the side. Um, so it, it was definitely a culture shock for me, but it was one of those things that it, it still is a part of my game. You know, if you don't have that confidence that, you know, I'm going to go out and I'm going to, you know, kick your butt day in and day out attitude, you're going to have a tough time against the best of the best. So, um, yeah, those two seasons really shaped me and molded me into, um, I hate to say a new person, but maybe a different version of myself that uh, that really kind of, like you said, gave me a, a, you know, a leap into my professional career. One final Stony Brook question. In 2017, you're inducted to the Stony Brook Athletics Hall of Fame. This October, the entire 2012 team is going to be inducted. You plan to be at the ceremony? And if so, 
who do you look forward to seeing at this reunion? Well, if we're not in the playoffs, I won't miss that. You know, it's a, a win-win for me. It's either we're in the playoffs and we're making a push and giving, uh, you know, the state of New York and the city of New York a, a great thing to watch, or I'm going up there and meeting my college buddies again and saying hi and getting inducted. So um, I hope I don't make it, but, I, you know, it would be awesome to have a backup plan of going there. Um, it's, it's really all the guys. You know, uh, my roommate was from Canada. Um, he's up in Canada now. I haven't been able to see him or meet with him in probably four or five years. He's married and has a child now. So, um, he's planning on going down there. Um, you know, Pat Cantwell, he's a bullpen catcher for the, the Texas Rangers. Now, uh, it'll be great to see him. Salon Tagliata, an outfielder. Um, he's living up in Boston, Massachusetts. Now he's a doctor, so he doesn't have too much time to, to get away and hang out. So, I mean, all these guys, you know, we had a baseball house and these guys were all, uh, all my roommates. So just to spend time with them and, and see how their lives have, you know, transformed from the 2012 sea wolves to the, uh, you know, 2022, uh, doctors, firefighters and bullpen. Uh, it's going to be awesome to catch up with them and have, uh, have a drink or two with them in person. So take us back to draft day when the Padres select you 44th overall in the 2012 draft. You're the first of four Stony Brook players to be selected in that year's draft and the only outfielder. Um, you're taken in the first round, becoming the highest Major League Baseball draft pick from the America East Conference since Carlos Pena, who attended Northeastern, was selected 10th overall in 1998. What do you remember about the day you know, leading up to it and, and just the moment your name's called? It was, uh, it was a crazy day. It was, um, our, that was the championship day of, um, of the regionals down in Miami and we were playing UCF and, uh, the day before we had a double header, we, uh, we were in the elimination bracket and we, we played Missouri state and beat them. And then, uh, about 30 minutes later had to play in, uh, this was probably beginning of June down in Miami. So the weather was pretty hot, had to turn around and play UCF and, and beat them so it was exhausting um but i woke up that morning and i called my my advisor i said listen i, I the only thing i want to know is is it going to happen today he said yes i said okay that's all i need to know you know is if it's going to happen today that's all i need to know i don't care when i don't care what team just as long as it'll happen today i can tell people you know hey just keep an eye on it but that was the only thing i wanted to know then i was locked in on the game um they uh did the um I don't know how to say it. Um, I guess um, they had the privilege to air the draft live in between innings, which was um, maybe something to try and distract some people from the game. But, uh, you know, we're playing UCF, and I think the draft started in like the third inning, and I'm looking up at the scoreboard in between innings, and they're showing the draft picks. And I think by the end of the game, pick 30 had gone, and I still wasn't drafted. And we just won the game, and I'm ecstatic, and I'm pumped up hanging out with uh, – you know, all the families there and my teammates, we just won our first regional in Stony Brook. So I'm thrilled. And, uh, we're about to head on the bus and my agent calls me and he says, Hey, he goes, stay by your phone and pick 43 had just gone. He said, stay by your phone. And I have my phone on me and sure enough, pick 44, I'm about to walk on the bus and San Diego Padres call and say, Hey, we've selected you with the 44th overall pick. Welcome to San Diego. And, uh, you know, my whole team, they're looking at me like, you know, what's going on? What's going on? So I said, guys, I just got picked 44th by the, uh, by the San Diego Padres. And we all ran off that bus and had a huge mosh pit, a huge, uh, you know, celebration in the parking lot of the Miami uh, baseball field. So 
it was special, man. And to be able to celebrate with, with my teammates who at that point were, were nothing less than brothers to me was, was something I'll cherish forever. Yeah, there's nothing better than that. That's an amazing story. Uh, you you make your way up the Padres minor league ladder and, and make your major league debut August 22nd, uh, 2015, batting in uh, against the St. Louis Cardinals. You single in your first two at-bats, making you the only third Padre in franchise history to get two hits in your first two major league appearances. You also become the first Padre since Tony Gwynn to record two hits and an RBI in your first game. What are your most vivid memories of that game and everything leading up to it and, and knowing, you know, that you're in the starting lineup and, and you've achieved your goal of making the majors? Yeah, two things. Well, three things stand out to me. Um, the first was walking into the batter's box, looking around and seeing Yadier Molina and being like, holy smokes, this is real. You know, like this is it. You know, the best catcher in baseball is catching my major league debut. Um, second thing I remember is how vividly I saw the baseball. Um, everything was in such slow motion that day that, you know, I, I feel like I could almost count each individual seam on, uh, on John Lackey's fastball. It was, it was incredible. And the, uh, the third thing that sticks out to me is running down to first base after that first hit. It's not even running. It's like you're floating, you know, you have so much adrenaline in your body. It's just, yeah, you don't put your feet touch the ground. Um, so those are the three things that stand out the most to me. Um, it was, it was an awesome experience. It's, it's something I'll never forget. So we're talking about first, about a month later, on September 12th, you hit your first home run against Mike Leak and the Giants at AT&T Park. It's only your third professional home run. What do you remember about that at bat? I remember being totally shocked. <laughs> um, you know, I'm, I'm not a home run hitter. I, I, you know, anytime I hit a home run, it's pretty much a mistake. You know, it's the last thing on my mind. And for it to happen in San Francisco off Mike week was one of those things where I was like, this is, uh, this can't be real. Um, it was a three, two count fastball kind of up and middle away. And, um, that's about it. You know, I remember running around the bases and thinking, geez, I kind of want to go slow and enjoy it. But at the same time, I'm not trying to show anyone up. So, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was awesome. You go from the Padres to the Reds and then to the team you grew up rooting for, the Philadelphia Phillies. What's that like, getting the opportunity to play for the team that you grew up rooting for? Awesome. You know, that's uh, that's a team that when I really got into baseball was a team that I was looking uh, looking and watching every single night. You know, Chase Utley, Jimmy Rollins, Ryan Howard, Jason Worth. Um, I was fortunate enough to be 16 when, you know, the Phillies were – the best team in baseball at that point you know they won the 2008 world series and then turned around and in 2010 came right back and it was uh it was awesome because that was when i really was starting to understand the game and uh you know kind of understand the little ins and outs to be able to watch those guys every night was awesome so um putting on that phillies uniform is as bad as it sounds being a mets player now was was something that was really really special to me um I think anyone in my shoes, you know, New Yorkers or, you know, Cincinnati Reds fans being able to put on the team, um, you know, the team's jersey that you watch growing up and play in the city that you're rooted for is it's a tremendous honor. I just got to warn you. I mean, as much as New York fans love you, all right, you, you know, 
it just went down a notch the second you mentioned Chase Utley. But that that aside, <laughs> we'll, we'll just move on from that. Uh, March 17th, 2022, the Mets signed you to a minor league contract with an invitation to spring training. I'm there the day you arrive. I remember the scrum and everyone. I mean, the scrum really just consisted more of people asking you about your nickname, which was kind of strange. But I remember seeing you standing by your locker. And it was interesting because of where you were, because uh, along the line of where you were, I, I believe Khalil Lee and, and Nick Plummer were also there. And in my head, I'm looking at you, Nick Plummer, Khalil Lee. Then in the back of my mind, I'm thinking also Dom Smith and maybe J.D. Davis, you know, trying to get some outfield time along with, you know, Kana, Marte and Nimmo. Um, so I'm thinking, wow, th- there is a lot of competition for for probably one outfield spot when you sign uh, or your agent, you know, directs you to a team is that a conversation like do you go over the depth chart and when you're there and you look at all those guys in that locker room do you already know day one what you think you need to do to make the team yeah absolutely you know that's something that you know that's one of the first conversations you have with an agent you know is is there a spot for me on this team um obviously the second conversation is is this team going to win you know but uh, the first conversation is you want to be a part of that winning team. You know, if if the team's winning, but you're part of it, it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. Um, in the same time, if you're a part of a losing team, maybe you play to get traded. Maybe you play to go to a winning team at the, uh, at the trade deadline. But winning is, you know, a very close second question. So uh, for me, you know, I did kind of see a path there as a fourth outfielder. Um, I looked at the roster and it, it seemed to me and agents, you know, kind of eyes and our understanding that the only thing this team was lacking was probably a, a true fourth, fifth outfielder, defensive replacement, speed type guy. Which I've done, you know, for the second half of my career. So I was pretty, pretty used to that role and uh, could really do that role at a, you know, a major league level and was confident I could do that. So, um, yeah, there's definitely that conversation. And, um, you know, once you sign with the team, you put your head down and go to work. You know, it's not, oh, I need to do this. I need to do that. It's no, you go out there and, and you perform, you know, that's, that's your goal. And if you don't, it, it doesn't matter what the roster crunch looks like or, or what team you're playing for. If, if you don't perform, you're not going to be there. You performed well enough in spring training to catch Buck, you know, his eye, Buck Showalter. Um, April 6th, you are added, you know, you're given a major league contract, uh, open, you know, added to the major league opening day roster. Who told you that you were heading north with the team and what did it mean to you? You know, um, was it an affirmation of what your agent and yourself thought going into spring training that, you you know, you, you thought right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was it was Buck and Billy uh, Epler who broke the news to me, and um, you know they did a really good job of it. There's there's a lot of emotions that go into spring training when you don't know if you're going to make the team or not. You know, uh, there's a lot of situations that arise that people might might not you know particularly think of. You know, where are we going to live? Um, you know, where are we going to ship our car? Um, I need to find you know rent. I need. Uh, you know, three bedroom because I have three kids and a wife. So it's one of those things that there's a lot of stuff that goes into it. So uh, to be able to find that out, um, it, it was awesome, you know. And then um, for me, you know, my wife handles all the arrangements. I just go and play and she lets me focus on on just baseball and just going out there and performing. So she found a place in New York for us to stay and we were, uh, we were good to go. But yeah, it definitely solidifies when you get that good news. You know, I made the right decision. I'm glad that, you know, we talked it over and thought it through and, and pursued the right team. 
You first start April 9th. You sold two bases against the Nationals. Then in the Mets' home opener against the Diamondbacks, April 15th, you have a three-hit game, and the legend of Travis Jankowski begins to grow. Uh, Buck, every postgame would sing your praises. You talked about knowing your role and embracing it, and of course the now famous, no one's going out buying a Travis Jankowski jersey. Walk us through that statement and then what it meant to walk into a locker room full of Travis Jankowski jersey t-shirts with your name and number on the back of them and to have all your teammates go out there and warm-ups wearing those t-shirts with your name and number on the back. Yeah, my good. No, I didn't think a statement would blow up that. Um, that was, uh, I guess that's a New York media I wasn't used to. <laughs> but uh, no, for me, it was just kind of a way for me to um, – let people know that I understand my role and I'm happy in my role. You know, there's a lot of guys who complain about not playing every day. A lot of guys who complain about not getting a fair chance in the major leagues. Guys, I'm happy to put that Jersey on every single day. You know, it's one of those things that it's, it's an honor to put that Jersey on. It's something I've dreamed about. And um, whatever role it is for me, if it's pinch running, if it's starting, if it's pinch hitting, if it's going out and playing defense, you do it to the best of your ability. It's, it's to me, it's just what you do. You know, it's how I was raised. Um, so yeah, that comment, no one's going to be buying my Jersey was just one of those things that guys, if I were a New York Mets fan, I don't think I'd be buying my own Jersey. You know, it's one of those things you got Scherzer, you got Lindor, you got Pete, you know, you got DeGrom, then you got Jankowski. Well, one of those just doesn't seem to fit, you know, but, uh, it's, it was really cool to walk in that day and see all those jerseys on the back of people's chairs and to go out to BP and see pitchers and everyone wearing your Jersey. It was that was a really special moment for me. And that's something that for me, I'll, I'll never, ever forget that. And uh, yeah, I can't thank the team and, and the New York media and, and the city of New York and all the New York fans for embracing that. So May 25th, a date I'm sure you'll remember. You broke your hand on making a diving catch in a game against the Giants. By my count, that's the third time you've broken bones going after balls in the outfield. I know people love your outfield play and defense along with speed. It's part of the game's gotten you to the majors. But do you ever wonder, is it worth it? You know, if the broken bones that put you on the IL could in the long run hurt your chance to stay in a major league roster? Yes, all the time. Um, it's one of those things that I think after each injury I've had, you kind of go through the why. You know, why did I do that? You know, it was a, it was a nine to three game in the eighth inning. You know, why? Why do you do that? And then, you know, about a week after discussing that with yourself in your own head, you come to the realization and it just kind of pops to you. You do it because you play to win. You know, you don't pick and choose when you play hard. For me, it doesn't matter the score. It doesn't matter nine to three, one to one, 10 to 10. It doesn't matter if it's a first inning, the 12th inning, the World Series or spring training. You go out and you play to win the game. And to me, you know, it wouldn't be fair to myself to not go out and make that play. It wouldn't be fair to Seth Lugo, who's on the mound, working his butt off to get outs. It's not fair. You know, it's not fair to those guys to go out and just say, oh, I'll let this one drop. That's not my mentality. I'm going out there and I'm catching everything. And unfortunately, it, um, it derailed my season a bit. Um, it, it, um, it, it did have an injury and an impact, but it doesn't matter. You know, to me, if that play happens 10 out of 10 times and I know the results, I'm doing it each and every time. 
And that's what's endeared you to the New York Met fans. And, you know, it's also contagious throughout that entire team. That's the way this team has been playing all year long. Uh, it's interesting. You and I spoke after the first game of the Subway Series at City Field, and it, which was right before the trade deadline. And we talked about how tough it was knowing that there's a good possibility that someone who was at that point part of a 60-win team is going to be traded away. And, yes, we all know it's a business, and maybe fans don't see it, but when you're around a team a lot, you get to know the players more than just averages or what their war numbers are. Can you put into words what the period from July 29th was when you're designated for assignment by the Mets to August 1st when you claim off of waivers by the Mariners – you play a game for them. Then you're designated for assignment on August 5th. Four days later, you're, um, you decline that option, um, becoming a free agent. Only four days later, you sign with the Mets again to a minor league contract. Could you kind of put it into words what that's like, not only for you, but for your family and everything that goes along with it? Because, you know, fans just say, okay, you know, we made this roster move and that roster move, and they look at the team. They don't necessarily see what goes into everything the players that are moving, you know, the moving parts go through. Yeah, it's uh, hectic. It's chaos. Um, it's, uh, again, there's a ton of emotions that go into it. You know, I just went to war with these, you know, 25 other guys on my team for three months. And now I have the possibility of playing against them. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that, it's part of the game. Um, but, but again, you're, you're a human being, you have emotions, you know? Um, so when I got DFA, you know, I, I wasn't upset, you know, I understood that this was a move that the front office, you know, decided to make to better the team. Um, so uh, it's not one of those things of, you know, I'm not mad. I'm not ticked off. It's just, uh, kind of deflated, you know, it's one of those things that, I want to be with the Mets, you know, this, this is the team that I bonded with since, you know, March, you know, I bonded, I've made relationships with these guys. I want to play with them. I want to go to war with them every single day. And then, uh, you know, when you get DFA, it's all right. Well, if you go unclaimed, you're in AAA, you go put up some numbers, you know, hopefully you're back up soon. Um, then you get claimed, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, okay. Um, now I'm on another team. Okay. Let me, let me switch this mindset. Let me turn off the Mets and turn on the Mariners, you know? So you look through the rosters, you look through, okay. Um, you know, what, what is my role on this team looking out to be? What's this, what's this shaping up to be an everyday guy, bench guy? Am I a filling guy? Um, you know, you talk with the manager your first day there, you try to build relationships as quick as you can because they're in a playoff push too. So it's, uh, it's, it's very chaotic. You know, you, you have to learn about 50 new names, um, which for me is never easy. Um, but, um, you know, it was crazy because with those three, four days over being with Seattle, that, that group em embraced me and kind of, you know, engaged with me to a point where I built relationship with them in four days. Um, so it's, uh, it's crazy. And then they let you go and it's all right, well now what, you know, am I getting claimed again? Do I have to go through this whole process again? Um, and then you just kind of sit and you let it, let it kind of play out. Um, I, I talked with my agent and I had a feeling that I probably wasn't going to get claimed again after the second time DFA. So I flew back home to Pennsylvania and spent time with my family to take my mind off of all the chaos and had some, uh, you know, great days with my kids in the backyard playing wiffle ball and uh, going to the pool and hanging out. So um, to be honest with you, I think it's one of those things. If I were single, it would be 
a lot harder. But when you have a family and three kids to distract you and take your mind off of it, and uh, you know, when you really put things into perspective, that time with my family was great. Um, then it's back to work, back to work with the Mets. So you're back in the organization. What's the mindset while playing in AAA? Are you keeping tabs on the big club, which I'm sure even if you were with Seattle, knowing that you went to war with those guys, you would casually look at the box scores and stuff. And how tough is it to buy into a team concept at AAA while knowing that you need to put up numbers so maybe the big club looks and says, all right, you know, he's our next option to be called up? Yeah, for me, that part has never been very difficult. Um, You know, I understand that in the minor leagues, winning isn't the number one priority, development is. But just because that's an organizational philosophy doesn't mean that it has to be my philosophy. Um, to me, you win. You know, it, it, again, it doesn't matter. Wiffle ball in the backyard, triple A, mm-hmm. high, win. You know, you go out and you do what you can that day to help the team win. Um, and I think by taking that mentality day in and day out, at the end of the day, your numbers are up there. You know, your numbers are where they are and, and you prove that what you do can contribute to a winning team. And by the end of you know the season, hopefully you get called up again. Um, so for me, you know, it's never one of those things. Yes, it, it is about development in a certain sense, about getting back, you know, after having uh, a minimal amount of at bats after um, you know the All Star break, getting your swing right and all that. But you know, that's to me, you do that up until six thirty. Come six thirty five, and that first pitch is thrown, you go out and you do whatever you can to win that game. Um, so yeah, it's it's. For me, it's always kind of simple. Play to win. Does, well, does it bother you that the phrase of the day right now is, is three true outcomes? And that's not your game. How much harder has it made it for you to you know, establish yourself now and get back to the majors if you're not that type of player? Yeah, you know, that, uh, that phrase has haunted me since 2017. Um, but, you know, I, I do truly think that, and you can see it with the Mets roster, that uh, – that that phrase is kind of getting phased out of this game. I hope, um, you know, you, you see guys like, uh, Brandon Nimmo, you know, you see guys like Jeff McNeil pretty much from top to bottom. You got a lineup that's grinding out at bats, you know, they're not chasing the long ball to me. That's why, you know, we as an organization, the Mets are having such success, you know, when, when you put, um, you know, a starting pitcher, when he's got 100 pitches in the fifth inning, the first game of a series, and you're getting to the and one of a three or four game, and you can see these arms each and every day, there has to be a, you know, a stat out there to show the percentages of chances of you winning that series. Um, and that's what, you know, we do such a good job of up there. Um, and to me, too, you know, it's, it's one of those things that there's um, – there's something that analytics and, and a computer can't quantify. And that's the, the emotions and the intensity and the, the kind of um, tiredness of a pitcher when he has to, from top to bottom, continue to execute pitches, knowing that hitters won't expand the zone and hitters aren't just checking home run. When, when one through nine is grinding out at bats and making that pitcher earn his outs, he's exhausted after five innings, you know, and that's something that, you can't you can't quantify with the analytics so i'm not anti-analytics i think there's a place for it but i think too you can't take away the huge element of the game um and and i hope that that starts to get phased back in here 
I, you know, I hope so too. We talk about that a lot on this show and you, you can't even, you know, there's no way you can quantify desire and this Met team, you know, one through 25 and all the guys down there at Syracuse also have it. So there is no doubt we will see you again in a Mets uniform sometime this season. I, for one, cannot wait to see that. Travis, thanks again for your time tonight and as well as every time, you know, during BP when you're walking off and I ask you if you got time, you always oblige. So we really appreciate it and hope to see you at City Field really soon. Absolutely. Guys. Thank you very much. It was an honor and a privilege to talk with you guys. Hopefully we can do it again. Definitely. I'll hold you to it. All right. Absolutely. You got it. Travis Jankowski. 